Now, I'm very conscious today, and in fact, I'm conscious most weeks, but I'm very conscious today that when we come to the sermon, uh, indeed, when we come to worship, not just the sermon, but the praise, the prayers, the reading of Scripture, the, when we gather together, you need to take, we need to take something away. We do need to take something, and we recognize that, and we recognize the need for the Holy Spirit in order to help that. You need to go away with some kind of clearer vision of uh, what it means to be a Christian and why it's worth carrying on being a Christian. You need uh, to hear God's voice uh, through His Word and through the preaching and through the songs and, 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 and all that we do together. It needs to be, I sense, I feel, it needs to be vivid and not vague for you. And uh, that's important that we come each week and we come to be refreshed and renewed and given a clearer understanding again of our uh, uh, faith in Christ and why it's significant. And so we're always praying that God will speak to us uh, through the worship and through the Word as it's preached. And one of the things we've been really trying hard to do with these stories is to understand the principles behind them and work out why God has recorded these stories and why they're recorded for us, and what we need to, we recognize that they're out of our comfort zone, they're out of our cultural understanding, they're out of our time, but yet they're, they remain what God wants us to know, and wants, He wants us to understand about Himself as part of uh, His own ongoing revealed Scripture. Uh, and part of what we've seen is that we've, we recognize the importance of God intervening in our lives as he did in the lives last week. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and this week with, with Daniel. And that, in a sense, is one of the principles. Uh, when we come together to worship, we're looking for God to intervene uh, through his word and through his person into our lives. So this must never be, and it ought never to be a lecture. Sermons should never be lectures. They're not lectures. They're something much more significant, in a sense, than lectures. And the Bible says it's through the foolishness of preaching that God chooses to work and reveal himself. Not obviously just the half-hour uh, monologue from, but, and because it's not a monologue, uh, because you're all drawing it out of me, uh, and God is, is working through it. But also as we just declare truth uh, from his word in any other context. But what I want to do this morning is just pose two questions from this story. Even as I'm reading it again, I realize there's lots and lots and lots that I'm going to be missing out, and that's sad. But we only have half an hour, and so I'm going to look at two questions, particularly from this story from Daniel. And the first question is, how do we live in the city of Edinburgh as Christians? Okay, we're from Edinburgh. We live in Edinburgh. Uh, we're Christians in Edinburgh. How do we live as Christians in the city of Edinburgh? And the second question is, how can we face the unwanted in our lives? So when the unwanted things happen in our lives, how can we face them as Christians how does God want us to face them as Christians? And I think we can learn uh, at least some answers from bo to both of these questions from uh, the chapter that we read on Daniel. So how can we live in the city of Edinburgh as Christians? This is an important city. We love the city. Uh, it's important uh, to us, and it's important to the nation. And uh, the congregation is full of people who live and work in the city. We have uh, all kinds of different people. We have lawyers and bankers and teachers and nurses and doctors and people in other jobs and people studying, people in school, people in communities, citizens of Edinburgh and its environs. And uh, we can learn from Daniel, in the way Daniel lived in a very significant and important city of Babylon, how we can live, how we, we can follow his example uh, as we live. And of course, it doesn't just uh, 
It doesn't just apply to city life. Uh, but there is a great significance, I think, for us uh, as people, as Christians who are living in the city. And there's two words from the chapter that I think uh, summarize and highlight the kind of attitude that Daniel had uh, of living in the city. And the first is in verse 3, uh, where it says that Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials, etc., because an excellent spirit was in him. So the first word is excellence. Daniel had uh, an attitude of excellence to living in the city and working in the city. He, he was living in captivity, if you remember that. His people, God's people, had been taken out of the promised land because of falling into idolatry uh, and were captive in Babylon, which was a godless, or at least they didn't worship the living God. They were a city and a people and a power uh, who worshiped idols. And yet in Babylon, he understood and he knew uh, what God wanted him to do when he lived in the city and what he wanted the people of God to do when they lived in the city of Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 4 to 7, we have these words. Hopefully. No, we don't. Okay, right. I'll just look them up. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, this is very important. Oh, we do. Uh, this was a prophecy that was given before the people went into exile into Babylon. And Jeremiah, uh, God through Jeremiah says to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for, its, for in its welfare... Uh, you will find your welfare. So there was a, a longing from God that the people of Babylon would prosper as Daniel and his uh, 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 compatriots also sought to prosper in the city. So they were encouraged to immerse themselves into the life and into the culture of the city of Babylon, to reach as high as they could uh, in the city, to seek the good of that city, and to work for the kings and the leaders of that city, uh, for the secular uh, leaders uh, and uh, the idolatrous leaders of that city. And that was Daniel's job, and he was excellent at it. He worked for King Darius, and uh, his task was to make sure that King Darius suffered no loss. And that's primarily an economic term. So he, had, he was a kind of economist, and he made sure that uh, the returns for Darius were good. And he was excellent at that job. And he served the king. He didn't simply work there to survive. He didn't simply work um, to get enough money to go on holidays. He, he served the king. He wanted the king to, to suffer no loss. And he was excellent in all he did. He was above reproach. Verse 4 tells, tells us that Daniel was, they couldn't find any complaint or fault. He was faithful. No error or fault was found him in. He really worked well uh, in this environment. And he did his absolute best he was real promotional quality, and excellence was what he pursued uh, in his work. So that's the first word that helps to describe Daniel and how he lived in the city. The second word maybe isn't quite so popular in verse 13, uh, when the satraps come and accuse uh, Daniel of, of praying. They say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. So, excellence is the first word. The second word I would use to describe uh, how a principle of living in the city is exile. In other words, Daniel, although he pursued excellence and he served the king 
And uh, he, he got involved in the culture absolutely fully and completely in, in many levels, was an outsider. He didn't belong. He was an exile. He was foreign. His colleagues never really accepted him, and they were jealous of him. He couldn't be bought. His ethics and his morality was outstandingly uh, honest and clear, and that invoked antagonism within them, not only because of who he was uh, uh, in his culture and in his race and his ethnicity, but also because of his morality and his ethics. He was consistently different morally and ethically. Yes, he was excellent, but he was also an exile. He knew his God. They knew he knew his God. They knew that he prayed regularly three times a day. We're told that in verse 10, that he did what he was his uh, habit. He went and prayed three times towards Jerusalem. Uh, and nothing changed that. They knew that. They knew that nothing would change his, his habit, his honesty, and his dedication to the living God. And uh, he was someone who, while pursuing excellence, also knew he was in exile. He understood what it was to be in exile in the city, and he knew that from God's Word. Corey read from First King that Solomon's prayer and the dedication of the temple, and he would have known and understood that in this prayer, Solomon prayed, when, when we are taken into captivity, uh, may it be that my people face towards Jerusalem and pray in repentance and pray for a return to that city. And Daniel knew that, and that's what he did every day. He, that's why he, he went facing Jerusalem, because that's, where his, that's what he knew as home. He had a bigger perspective, and he prayed towards his God, pleading that God would take them out of exile back to the promised land. Uh, that's where his home was. That's where his heart was. And so we have the, the, two, the two elements of living in the city, one of excellence and one of exile. Now, can I apply that then to your life and to mine as a principle? What can the principle be in terms of how we live as Christians in the city, or indeed, whatever we live as Christians? I wrestled about a phrase to use. I couldn't think of one for a long time, but I thought a good one is just godly immersion. That's, what he wants. That's the principle of living as a Christian today in a secular world, is one of godly immersion. And that's attention. So you live your life, and I live my life with a constant tension, a tension between being godly, following God, and uh, being involved in the world, being immersed in the world in which we live, the kind of truth element and the love element that drives us out. We're one of, of them, but in some ways we're not. We're, we're like people, but in other ways we're not. And we always need to be aware, I think, of extremes. We need to be aware of of extremes in this area so that at one level we can become monastic and pursue in inverted commas godliness which separates us from everyone that's not biblical godliness or we can be immersed at the other extreme just so completely like the world in which we live that we're not different from it we're absolutely the same no one knows that we're christians because of our morality our ethics our, our silence uh, and there's the two extremes that the principle brings us into the middle, which is a godly immersion. And there, there's tension there. And it's a battle and a wrestle that we have to face every day, that we need to pursue excellence in the world in which we live. It's vital that you go to your work tomorrow or your studies pursuing excellence, that you're not dragging your feet, 
They're not saying, ah, well, it's just a rubbish job, and I've got a rubbish employer, and I, I've got, I just want to complain and moan about everything. We're pursuing it. We do it wholeheartedly. We seek the good of our employers. We seek their good. We seek to do our best for them. We seek excellence. We seek promotion. We love the city and its culture and its people, and we pray for them. We pursue excellence in all that we do, and we seek to get to the top if we've got the gifts and abilities to do so. There's nothing particularly godly or saintly about staying at the bottom of the ladder. Nor is there anything particularly saintly or godly or getting to the top of the ladder. But it's the pursuit of excellence in whoever and whatever we are that is a, a principle that we learn from Daniel. But alongside that principle of excellence is the principle of exile, that we're to be godly in our immersion in the world, that this is not our home. This is not all that there is. This is not just what we're living for. You're called to be different. You belong to a different king, King Jesus. We serve another master. And so that perspective will inevitably uh, set us at odds in, in the world in which we live. Uh, we, will, we don't belong. First uh, Peter 4, 3 and 4. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join with them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So you'll, be, you'll have abuse heaped on you because you choose to live and follow Christ and, and live uh, according to uh, the principles that guide you uh, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So that is inevitable, living in exile. If we're following Christ, we're going to pursue excellence, I hope, but also live in exile. Now, with all the sympathy and love I can muster, can I say in terms of that exile, suck it up. Just suck it up. Deal with it. Expect it. Don't blame God. Don't shake your fist at God when these things happen. Don't accuse him of been unloving. This is the world in which we live. We will pursue excellence, and we have to recognize we're living in exile. Daniel sucked up. Daniel recognized that this is the world he lived in, and uh, that is the reality. Deal with it. If it's good enough for Daniel, if it's good enough for Jesus Christ, it's going to be good enough for us as well, and we should rejoice in that, but never go after it and seek it. How can we maintain that tension? How can we maintain the tension of godly immersion in the world? Well, I would suggest prayer. <laughs> prayer is the best answer to that. The following Daniel's example, maybe not literally three times a day, you, you may do much more than that, uh, much less, but regular, relentless, daily, habitual, thoughtful prayer. He kneeled, he went on his knees and he kneeled towards Jerusalem. Now, we don't all need to, and it's difficult in church to get on your knees, but I think there's a good principle behind kneeling because it says something about uh, understanding who God is, isn't, doesn't it? It's, very un, it's kind of uncool today, I think, probably to kneel. But I would encourage you to kneel by your bedside or to kneel in the chair, your, comfort, your, your, your praying chair, whatever that chair might be. Kneel. Because it's a good mental, uh, physical uh, reflection of a mental understanding that we... Uh, come before the throne of grace, but we remember it's still a throne. It's still his throne. And when we pray on our knees, we're saying, no, my will be done, but yours. That's the essence of prayer, isn't it? 
not my will be done, uh, but yours. And Daniel would have recognized what Solomon was saying in Kings, what we looked at, and that he knew for himself and for his people they needed to repent and turn if they were to get back to the promised land. And his life and his prayers would have been one of relentless repentance and pleading. Uh, I'm sure he pled about not going into the lion's den because, you know, we're told that he, he, he knew about the document and then he went to pray. So I'm sure he, was, he pled also that he wouldn't end up in the lion's den and he prayed his requests. Um, nothing could stop him. You would have thought, he might have thought, I'm not going to pray at this point. I'm simply not going to do it. They know what my usual is. I'll do something different. I'll go downstairs into the basement and pray. Then they wouldn't see me. But he didn't do that. He did what he always did. It was, it was absolutely habitual that he did everything in his life with this dependence on prayer. For myself, and I'm sure sometimes for you, it's often some, the opposite, isn't it? It's the first thing that goes. It's the first thing we stop doing. It's the first thing we sacrifice. No time for prayer today. Too much to do to pray. Too many things happening to pray. And it's the first thing that we jettison in our lives. Daniel recognized the absolute living, passionate importance of prayer in his life. And also knowing the mind of God as he did, uh, praying God's prayers, praying God's promises, praying... Uh, searching the Scriptures, understanding what Jeremiah had said uh, from God about living in the city, knowing what lay ahead. And so for us, the big uh, question, as we think about immersion and godliness and living in the city, is, you know, where is our heart? And where is our home? Where is our heart? What is our perspective? Because prayer will reflect that. Prayer will reflect the, our understanding of whether we're in exile or whether we're just immersed. And will help us to keep the right perspective because we can't do it on our own. God promises to help us. So that's the first question, taking longer, sorry, on that than I intended. The second question, which I'll which be briefer, is how can we face the unwanted in our lives? So Daniel, you know, it's a famous story. You know, well, Daniel's 80 years of age by this stage, and his life has been full of battles and of blessings. And here he is towards the end of his life, and he's facing another huge battle, a den of lions. Is this it for him? Is this what it's going to be like as he faces this horrible, unwanted end in his life? And so, you know, we recognize there's so many things that are unwanted. You may have come to church with a whole bag full of unwanted things uh, that are happening in your life just now. Maybe that your life doesn't make sense. It may be illness. It may be weakness, suffering, or, or, or difficulty of one kind or another. God doesn't seem to be listening or answering anything that we say. We maybe feel victimized. There's a furnace or a pit ahead of us, uh, metaphorically speaking, opposed and discouraged maybe by the behavior of others or even behavior of Christians. You may sense powerlessness, as Daniel would have done, over to change circumstances. How many of you feel that in our day-to-day living, powerless over circumstances? You would love to change them. God's supposed to be all-sovereign and all-powerful. Why, why can't He change them for me? Or you may have had a very bad diagnosis this week and are facing certain death these things happen. That is life for us. The unwanted comes into our life. How as Christians do we deal with that? 
can we learn from Daniel about how to deal with the unwanted things that we all face in our lives? It's a very simple answer, but I hope it's not a glib answer for us in in verse 23. uh, And it's not Daniel who says it, it's the king who says it. um, uh, He's taken up out of the den of lions and don't eat him uh, because he had trusted in his God. So, you know, you knew that was the answer I was going to give, didn't you? Trust in God. And you think, well, there's nothing new there. He's not going to say anything that's going to help me because that's what everyone says. Uh, and so, but I don't want to be glib, uh, and, and it isn't glib. Uh, but it's real, and for Daniel, it's absolutely real. He kept doing the same thing. He didn't change anything when he was faced with the unwanted. His life is a visible illustration of trust. There's a quiet inevitability about what he does. He just goes to his room and he prays. He knows about the edict. He knows it's going to get him into a heap of big trouble, and he's going to face the lion's end, but he keeps doing what he's doing. And I sense, and I think in a sense, he epitomizes the words from Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And that's what he did, and that's what trust was for him. He knew God, he knew God okay? That, that was really the key. Whatever is happening in our lives when we are asked to trust is because we know the God in whom we trust. We keep searching His Word. We keep praying to Him relentlessly because we know who He is, and we know that He loves us, and we know what He has already done for us. And I would say, keep praying, especially when you don't feel it, especially when you would rather not. It's like eating. Sometimes you don't feel like eating, but it's important to keep eating within reason. But we can pray as much as we want because we'll never get fat spiritually. Uh, Don't turn away is what I'm saying in terms of knowing God. Uh, Turn away. If you hear these words, turn away. It's the malevolent whisper of the enemy. That is what it always is. It's never right or good to remain silent before the living God because God's our rescuer and God's our helper and God loves us. And we trust, therefore, because we know Him. And we, trusting means that we, we continue to know Him, even if He throws us into the pit. And if we're in the pit, whatever that pit might be, we can be there and know safety and peace. Now, you don't want to hear that, do you? And I don't want to hear that. But that's what He says. He says, you may go through the trial, but as you trust in Me, you can, like Daniel, know peace and safety, even there. It's counterintuitive. It's impossible, but that's what he offers. Trust is waiting for answers, as Daniel had to do, as he was taken, not delivered from initially, but taken into that darkness. Uh, We wait for answers because we know the pit is temporary. We know he will always redeem eventually. Don't presume in trust to know better or blame God and simply disobey Him. Daniel could have done any of these. These options were all open to him, but he chose not to. He didn't pray. At least we're not told what he prayed, but there's no indication that he prayed anything other than asking for God to help him. We are so often keen to give God the answers rather than simply make our requests. Know and trust that justice will be done. God is a God of justice, and often our complaints come from a a sense of injustice, that we've been dealt with unjustly, that it's not fair, that we've done what's right, but God, you're not acting justly, 
or other people aren't acting justly, as it was in the case with uh, uh, those who conspired against Daniel. And we're told again and again in the story they conspired, they got together, they conspired against him. Well, the, the, the challenging truth here is that ultimately they were hoist on their, by their own petard. They were blown up by their own bomb. Because ultimately justice will be done by God. And uh, where people and where we fail to submit in recognition to God who says, it's only through Christ that I can love God and only through Christ I can love my neighbor. And I can never do it properly, but Jesus did it for me. Only then can we be assured of being secure and covered by his justice. And trust involves leaving other people to God as well. Uh, Daniel here, it's an interesting story because it's, Daniel does his own thing with God. He doesn't, he doesn't re- argue with Darius. or he does, we've, we've got no indication that he looks at Darius and says, he's got everything, he's got power, he's got authority, he can do what he wants. Uh, I could maybe plead to him and he could set me free. He doesn't look enviously over at Darius and he doesn't even uh, try and persuade Darius. And that's, I think that's a good principle. Darius, interestingly in this story, there's more about Darius than there is about Daniel. And when Daniel's thrown in the den, you would think the Scripture would speak about what Daniel was thinking, but it actually speaks about what Darius was thinking, that he was miserable, he was upset, he didn't have any entertainment that night, he couldn't sleep, because God was working in his conscience, and Daniel could leave that for God to do. And Daniel could know that God will use his faithfulness to convict others in a positive way. And then faith, I think, or trust involves that gentle and confident testimony. It's understated, isn't it, that the only words from Daniel, they're worth looking at, aren't they? Because they're the only words that he speaks in this chapter. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. They have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Understated. It's so often the way of Scripture. Understated. Miracle, but no drama. Supernatural, but no sensation. We don't hear him coming out and saying, wow, the smell in there was appalling, and I'm I'm traumatized by lions' faces in my head all day, but not eating me. It was a terrible occasion. What on earth was God doing? There's nothing like that. There's just that simple, gentle testimony. I think so often, and you'll accuse me of this, just talking too much. But his life was so visible to all. He didn't need a million words to go with it. I think we need sometimes less chat and more godly immersion. And people will see it's not saying that we don't chat. We have to chat. We have to tell them, but in a very understated way. So trust is is definitely about, uh, or how can we face the unwanted in our lives? By trust. And lastly, and very, very briefly, it's by seeing the bigger picture as well. Uh, and, and Scripture, and we've seen this again and again and again in our Old Testament studies particularly, Scripture is a common theme. And it's pointing to, it's all about rescue and about redemption ultimately through Jesus Christ. And Daniel is a, well, I've called him anyway, I may be wrong theologically and uh, others will correct me, I've called him a prototype Christian. So he's before Christ, uh, but he points to Christ and he points to the Christian way. But he, he's a prototype Christian, but he does point to Christ himself. He was righteous. 
not truly righteous because he trusted in the coming Redeemer, but he was silent in the face of unjust accusations. He was judged by a weak and conscience-stricken political leader. He faced certain death. A stone was rolled over the entrance of the pit. It was sealed with a king's signet ring. He had heavenly company. There was resurrection at daylight. There was a declaration of peace. All of that does point forward to something greater. And the Old Testament Hebrew believers often cited Daniel as a reason for their belief in the resurrection because they saw his going into, de- going into the pit and coming out as a, as a picture of uh, resurrection and the hope of the resurrection. But there is shades even within that of a bigger rescue, isn't there? The lions in the lion's den, they, they have a spiritual depiction in the Bible, and the lions depict spiritual realities. They are the kings of the jungle. Lions are always the kings of the jungle. And they reflect power, therefore, Uh, And I think in the Bible, both good power and evil power. And on the cross, Christ faced the darkness of a cosmic pit. But for him, the lion's mouths were not shut. He faced both the power of God's good wrath against sin and also the dark powers of uh, satanic opposition and hell's worst. He faced God's wrath and God's justice. Amos 3 verse 8. I'm not sure if we've got that. We've got one or two week texts here in conclusion. The lion has roared, speaking about God's justice, who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So the lions speak often in the Bible of God's justice, but also in First Peter 5 verse 8 speaks of, as you know, the adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion seeking someone uh, to devour. And uh, in the prophetic Psalm, the great prophetic Psalm 22, uh, we have these words, prophetic messianic words, they open their wide mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So God, Jesus uses this picture of the opposition that he faced on the cross, and the lion's mouths were shut for Daniel because they were not shut for Jesus. And the lion's mouths of God's wrath against sin and death and darkness uh, are shut for us because they weren't shut for Jesus Christ who took uh, our battle and died in our place. Our broken hearts and our displaced loves, he took them in our place. There's a great verse in Exodus 14, Uh, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And that goes back to the trust thing. That's what he promises to do. He promises to be the one who fights on our behalf spiritually against God's just wrath against us, because we all fail. Failures by his standards of perfect love towards him and one another and the powers of darkness that would grab us, the powers of death that we are all under, unless we come by faith to the one who has won the victory for us, and that is because he loved the world so much. And that in that biblical uh, imagery, he himself becomes the great lion of the tribe of Judah, as we're told in Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. So he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So there's a great mixing of the imagery biblically, but all helps us to understand uh, his peace 
and his grace and his salvation that Daniel does uh, speak of. And just in conclusion, there's a, there's a future element, I think, even within this story in Revelation, uh, or Isaiah 11, verse 6, um, where the peace that Daniel experienced in the den where the lion's mouths were closed was a reminder to him of something future he may have not understood fully, and nor do we in many ways. But that picture of, of the new heavens and the new earth where the wolf shall lie down with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened and calf together and the little child shall lead them. That picture uh, of no more dispeace, uh, of a universe at peace with itself because of Christ's redemption, that new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness, where there will be excellence but no exile where there'll be joy and peace and harmony, which we look forward to. Daniel looked forward to getting back into the promised land, as it were, as a picture. We have a promised land, uh, a new heavens and a new earth, wherein righteousness and peace will dwell. So in Christ, the challenge for you today in worship and tomorrow at work is, can you dare to be a Daniel? Of course you can, because... Daniel's Savior is our Savior, and it is uh, through him and through dependence on him and that prayerful life. And we were hoping to do a short couple of sermons in the new year, but the importance of our Bible reading and prayer and preaching through that, the only way, a great way to start the year, to think and remind ourselves of that significance. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, help us to learn from you, to understand your word, uh, to see its abiding relevance and its tremendous challenge to us, uh, to be people who will put our whole trust in you, knowing that uh, we uh, simply uh, are imperfect sinners who need a Savior, because without you we are under that terrible sentence of death and uh, all that it means. And so we pray for an urgency about us entrusting our lives to you, and seeing and knowing what it means to know uh, and love and follow Jesus. So help us, we pray, and uh, bless us as we consider your word. In Jesus' name, amen.